We've been continuing this morning our journey together through the epistle to the uh, Philippians. This morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, uh, looking at verses 5 through 8. Boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin there. It's bright orange. You can't miss it. You have your own translation of today's passage in there and a place to ask us questions. And again, please, uh, Pastor John Mark and I love to get your questions, but when you give them to us, would you please put your name on them so we know who to uh, give an answer back to. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Father God, as we come before your word, we do ask that you would open this text up to us. We ask, Lord, that you would once again come, give us truth, Lord, for our growth, for our transformation. May we see Christ and not be the same having seen him. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to get into this uh, text today, I just want to let you know, big shock, there's a debate going on in our denomination between different strands in our denomination, different tribes are once again kind of chewing on each other as we're getting ready to have our big national uh, convention in a couple weeks in Houston. And the question that is being debated right now is, what role does God's law, God's instruction play in the Christian life? There are those who see Christians struggling with guilt They want Christians instead to focus on the reality of the gospel in everyday life. And so they want you to think about your status, how you have been changed from an exile to a forgiven, adopted child, and to rest in that. And if you focus on that grace, you will be changed eventually by that grace into living in a manner that honors God, that follows his instructions. And there's truth in that view. But that view can be taken to excess. On the other side are the pastors who see clear commands to obedience all over the Scripture, where God's instructions, God's law is called good by the Bible itself. And they say that the law is there to drive us to God for forgiveness. And then after God saves us, that grace challenges us to obey. And God's law is then what we are to obey. There's truth in that view, and it can be taken to excess as well. And the reason I'm telling you about this debate that I know you're just so incredibly interested in is that it actually flows right into our text today. It's precisely what Paul is getting at talking to the Philippian church as well. And so we're going to use that to understand God's word better. Previously, a couple weeks ago in verses 1 through 4, we saw this clarion call to unity in the body through laying aside of our self-esteem, our self-interests, and taking up humility and looking out for the interests of others. Today's passage, having given that instruction, today's passage now shows us how Jesus Christ himself set aside his own rights, set aside his own prerogatives of deity for the interests of others so that we, in union with him, should be inspired and then empowered by his example. So if you would, would you look with me at Philippians chapter 2? We're going to pick up verses 1 through 4 just to get some context, but we're going to be focusing on verses 5 through 8. This is God's word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is God's Word. So, Paul has challenged the Philippian church to unity through humility in verses 1 through 4. And now in verses 5 through 8, he's exploring Christ's humility to show them how to do that. I want to give you a theme for today. You can maybe write this down, help you remember what this sermon was about. At family worship, perhaps later today or throughout the week, you can use this to remember what God was teaching us today. And here's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus was humbled for us so that we could be humble in him. Say that again. Jesus was humbled for us so that we could be humble in him. Jesus laid aside what he deserved. He took up what we deserved so we could then love others as they deserve. So let's look at that together. We're actually going to kind of work our way uh, a little differently through this text. We're going to look first at verses 6 through 7 and see how Jesus laid aside what he deserved. If Jesus is presented to us as our example, then we need to understand what he did. Verse 6 tells us from the very beginning that Jesus Christ is very God of very God. Yet when the time came for him to fulfill his role as Redeemer, he did not cling desperately to that status and privilege as God. Instead, he covered his glory with human flesh. He condescended and became one of us. If you remember a couple weeks ago in verse 1 through 4, we saw that unity comes to the church through humility. We lay aside personal interests. We don't cling to them. Instead, we let them go. And we can only do that when we're secure in the gospel. When we know that we're loved, when we know that we're accepted because of what Christ has done, because of the grace in which we stand, then and only then can we lay aside our own interests for the interests of others. That kind of humility does not make us Christians. We prove we are Christians when we can lay aside our own interests for the interests of others. Paul let, put the teaching down first, and now he points to Christ as the one who empowers them to do this. That is what Jesus Christ did in his life as a man. Because he was secure and confident in his role in the Trinity, so to speak, he didn't have to grasp or cling to that position, to that glory as the second person. He was willing to give it up for the good of his people, for the glory of the Father and the Spirit. That's some kind of, that's a little heavy, it's a little thick there. Some of you boys and girls, your minds might be wandering a little bit, so go ahead and grab your orange piece of paper. Here's what we're trying to say. Here's what Pastor Sean wants you to get at. Look with me at your verse 6 and 7. Here's what Paul's telling this church. He says, Jesus was the glory of God, but he was willing to let that glory be hidden for a little while. Jesus covered his glory with a human body, 
humbling himself by being one of us. It's almost like Jesus wanted to play pretend with us, boys and girls. He was still God, but he goes, I want to be one of you. I'm going to act like one of you. You know how any of you little girls ever want to pretend to be a princess? And so you put on the tiara. I have girls at my house, so this happens a lot. The big flowy dress, right? And all of a sudden you start singing a song from Frozen now. And anyway, that's pretending to be a princess, right? Well, that's sort of what Jesus did. He wanted to come and be one of us. And so he puts on a human skin and he comes down to play with us, to be with us, to help us eventually come up and be with him. That's what Paul's saying is going on here. See, Jesus provides a great example, but it's more than just an example. Even in this verse, we see Christ's love for his people right here, his willingness to do this. He's undoing the curse of sin and death by his humility. Here's what I mean. If you think about this, Jesus does the exact opposite of what Adam did. Jesus was in the form of God, but he didn't grasp on to God's identity, his equality with God. Adam was in the image or the likeness of God, and he did try to grasp on to equality with God. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter 3, what was the temptation? What did Satan say? He said, you will be like God. And Adam was like, let's do that. He tried to grasp. See, Christ comes as the second Adam to undo all of that. And his work as the second Adam is all over this text. His humility undoes the damage brought on by Adam's arrogance. But there's also this other idea. The idea of grasping was also used in, in the original language. It was used as the idea of exploiting something, of taking advantage of something. So it was referring to the fact that Jesus voluntarily submitted to be human and then he acted human, even though there were times when he could have chosen to tap into that power He didn't. He did not exploit his deity. He lived as a lowly man. I want you to understand this, what what I'm trying to get at. Uh, One of my favorite movies is from the early, mid-80s maybe, starring Clint Eastwood. I mean, it's got Clint Eastwood. It's going to be good, right? It's called Heartbreak Ridge, and he plays this um, almost at the mandatory retirement age gunnery sergeant, and he's put in charge, his last kind of command, he's put in charge of this platoon of losers. They're a reconnaissance platoon. They've been let go. And basically what happens is the higher-ups have used this platoon as the whipping boy. So whenever they have like war games to make their platoons look better, they always whip this platoon. Well, no one told Clint Eastwood's character that they were supposed to lose. And so he made them into a really good platoon. They're doing this war games and his platoon is supposed to ambush the people right here. And they know about it, which like, you keep using that word ambush. I don't think you know what it means, right? So they're getting along, and the big commander's like, okay, we're, we're almost ready to the ambush point. And the, the observer who's kind of grading them goes, well, it sure must be nice to know when the ambush is coming. And that's kind of what the idea of exploiting is. For them to know the ambush was coming, they could be prepared. They weren't like a real platoon, because in the real situation, you don't know. So instead of being war games, it was more of a game than it was war training, because they were exploiting their knowledge. And that's what Paul says Christ did not do. He did not use divine resources that Adam didn't have. And that's not just some theological technicality. Okay, thanks. That's more than trivia. You realize that your redemption is based on the fact that as a man, Adam 
fell. And it's only as a person, as a fully human person, that that redemption can be made new, that Adam's mistake can be undone. He had to be just like Adam with the same resources. If Jesus Christ, even for a moment, had dipped into his divinity, had grasped it, exploited it to resist temptation, you and I would have no hope. Because Adam didn't have that. Therefore, he can't undo what Adam did. In humility, Jesus Christ cast that aside. And it was from his humanity, from reading Scripture, from prayer, depending on the Holy Spirit, just like you do, dear Christian, Jesus resisted temptation. He did not exploit his equality with God. He humbled himself for us so that we could be humble in him. Paul goes on to tell us that Jesus then took up what we deserved. Look with me, if you will, at verse 8 in your Bibles there, or in your bulletin. It says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How Jesus Christ, as, as a man, as God incarnate, his whole time, on earth, living as a God-man was arduous. I mean, we put a little footnote in the Apostles' Creed, because so many people always ask, what does it mean, descended into hell? I don't know if you have ever actually read the little footnote we put in there, but item number one on the footnote says this, by referring to Jesus' descent into hell, the Christian embraces three truths, and the first is this, we acknowledge the reality of Jesus suffering 33 years of temptation. Jesus' life as God, and yet man having to be here, be among a sin-sick world, seeing sin-sick people and seeing what sin does to his creations was arduous for him. It was suffering. And in that world, Jesus humbled himself by being obedient. And he was obedient to the things he didn't even have to supposedly be obedient to. Here's what I mean by that. I want you to think about the temple. The temple there in Jerusalem back in Jesus' day, it had this big main court that only Jewish males were allowed to go into. Then it had a further place called the sanctuary that only priests were allowed to go into on their days of service. And then behind that big curtain, we all know it was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest went and only on one day a year because that's where God's presence was. That is where communion with God took place. And the man, Jesus Christ, longed to be there, longed to be in the presence of where God is. But he was not a priest. He was not the high priest. And so he could not go. If anybody ever deserved to walk right into that temple and be in God's very presence, would it not be the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And yet he did not do it. He was obedient even to that rule because those were God-ordained rules. Those weren't man-made traditions. That's right out of Deuteronomy. He obeyed those things, even though he didn't have to. He would not have suffered death. He was worthy. He was sinless. He could have gone in there, but he humbled himself, held back. He obeyed. He submitted in his life as a man. Humble, submitting to things. He made himself low. All that power, all that authority, he cloaked in his humanity. And during his humanity, instead of seeking his own good, he sought for the good of others. The movie came out, it was a cartoonish movie, boys and girls, maybe you saw it, adults, maybe you saw it, it was called Megamind, 
It was a cartoon starring Will Ferrell as sort of the bad guy who becomes a good guy. Anyway, in this movie, the, the, the superhero is just tired of the whole thing, so he retires. He just leaves, fakes his death, and leaves. And so the villain takes over the whole city, and then he's bored. He's got no one to fight, so he creates a superhero. He trains him to be selfless. He trains him to put others first. He trains him to be a hero, in other words. Gives him all these powers, and then he lets him go, and he's ready to fight. And it turns out that this guy is selfish. He's self-centered. He's insecure. He doesn't like other people. And it turns out that he is not a hero. He's an all-powerful monster, not a savior. He used his power for his own interest and was wreaking havoc in the city. And Paul here tells us that that was not Jesus. Jesus used all of his power for the good of others. He laid aside what was best for him and said, I'm going to do what's good for other people. He was willing to give of himself so others can have it good. Do we who know Christ Do we have that kind of humility is the question of this text. Is that what we are known for? Or are we too slaves to our preferences, our interests, not the interests of others? You see, having humility, being humble and seeking unity in that humility means that there are many times when we're supposed to be uncomfortable even bothered by some of the things that happen in God's church. We're supposed to have to give up part of ourselves to let the interests of others grow. We're supposed to humble ourselves to our preferences so other people might have it better, and that's what unity looks like. Unity is not, all right, everybody conform to me and we'll be good. Unity is let me step back and conform to others where I can for their good. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard. So when something bothers you, step back and recognize, oh, the Holy Spirit's giving me an opportunity to exercise humility out of love. I don't particularly want to, but by the Spirit's power, I will try to. Is that how we usually react? You don't have to answer out loud, by the way. Because humility for others is hard, isn't it? Real humility is profoundly countercultural. But here's what's so great about that in a post Christian culture, it is our living out humility, living out love for each other where we really testify what we actually believe. Remember we saw a couple weeks ago talking about humility, John 17, Jesus Christ himself said twice, it is our loving unity that shows the world God sent Jesus. It's not our words, it's not our missions program, it's not our evangelism explosion. Jesus Christ himself says, if you live in one, the world will know that God sent me. Oh, let us strive by Christ's power and example for such unity. Oh, see, this verse tells us also not just that Christ merely put up with things that bothered him. No, in humility it says Christ obeyed all the way to the cross. He went there all the way. 
Oh, that's so important. Boys and girls, look with me at your, at your uh, bulletin. Look at verse 8 with me there. Here's what Paul is saying to his church. It says this, Being human, he made himself a humble servant by doing everything his father said, even willingly dying on the cross for us. You see, boys and girls, so often we think Jesus Christ was taken and arrested and put on that cross against his will, and it wasn't supposed to happen, but somehow we made it okay. No, Jesus Christ submitted himself to that, boys and girls. He willingly went to the cross. Jesus Christ told Pontius, his governor, his, the officer arresting him, you don't take my life from me. I willingly yield it up. And what's more, He didn't just yield up his life for us by a cursed death on the cross. Jesus Christ became cursed for us. The intimate second person of the Trinity became a curse to God. Became sin before a holy God and was crushed for it. Oh, it's so countercultural when we really think about it. And it was back then. The cross that we wear as jewelry today, the cross was not seen as heroic. The cross was seen as shameful. The cross was not seen as humility. It was seen as humiliation. And what makes this humiliation so profound is that Jesus Christ was the offended one to begin with. Our sins, our selfishness, our rebellion was against God himself. And it's one thing, I mean, what if God had just appointed a good man to die for us? We would be humbled by that. But God himself takes on human flesh and he dies for our rebellion. And when we get that, we're undone by that. Jesus laid aside his glory to die the death that we deserve. He took up what we deserved the curse, and the death. He was humbled for us so we can be humble in him. So now we move from the truth, the work of Christ as an example of humility. Now we move to the work of Christ powering our humility. Look with me at verse 5. We're going to see in Jesus we love others as they deserve. Verse 5 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, kind of short, a little weird. I'm going to get a little bit technical here. I hope, hopefully we have a visual aid here to help out. I want to explain this to you, what Paul is trying to say. And the reason I work backwards is Christianity always gives you the principle, and then it says, because of this principle, now you obey. There's always a truth behind every command. There's never just a bald command. So I want, I want, I want to explain how verse 5 works. Do we have a slide for this? Okay, so in verse 5, when he says, this mind, he's referring to verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then, going back to verse 5, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that also refers to the phrase, this mind. So all of that together. So what? Okay, thanks, Pastor Sean. What that means is Paul is saying this, through Christ." we have the ability to make verse 4 happen. Verse 4, where he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, Paul doesn't just give a command and say, all right, good luck. He gives the command. He says, now here's how in Christ you can obey this command. See, that's the somber beauty of Christianity. God's law, God's instructions, his commands 
they beat us. They drive us to despair because they are impossible to obey. The harder we try, the harder they get. And so they drive us to God for mercy, and he grants us mercy in the gospel. We bring nothing to the table in the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, trusting in the work of Christ alone. All we bring to the table is our sin, our failures, our desperate need. And he gives us his righteousness. He grants it to us by his grace. But, here's the key. Once we receive that grace, that grace changes us. Being united to Christ by faith empowers us to obey God's law. So here's the point. Why am I belaboring this? Non-Christians are not to look to Christ as an example to follow. Let me say that again. Non-Christians are not to be told to be more like Jesus. Jesus is never presented to non-Christians as an example to follow. Tomatoes and stones will be available to throw at me in the parking lot after church. He is the resurrected one to be believed in when we're talking to non-Christians. But once you do believe, Christians are absolutely to seek to imitate Christ. But the problem is, is we so often as born-again people, we go to the world and we say, be more like Christ. And they're like, why? I don't want to do that. But then once Christ makes them his own, they're like, okay, yeah, I want to do what dad says he likes. And we forget that transaction so often, don't we? So the world hears us say, be better, do better, be more moral. And they think, that's all you got to offer? I don't want that. Jesus is never to be presented to non-Christians as an example to imitate. But he is absolutely the example for Christians to imitate. That's what Paul's trying to say here. That's the difference. By his grace, he changes us. And then having given us that power, he says, now you can do this. The obedience that drove you to God saying, I can't do this, it's too hard. He says, I know, I forgive you. I make you obedient. I give you my Holy Spirit. Now you can obey Oh, you failed again? That's okay, repent. Christ covered it. Try again. Oh, repent. Try again. That's the gospel. The gospel is not, oh, God doesn't care about your obedience. Sin all you want. He'll cover it. No. That's not a heart that loves God. A heart that loves God wants to follow his instructions. Everybody take your bulletin out and turn to the front of your bulletin, please. The very front cover. C.S. Lewis captured this so well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. Print if you're there on the front cover. God looks at you as if you were a little Christ. Christ stands beside you to turn you into one. See, God looks at you and he makes you into a little Christ. Then once he has done that, once the gospel has taken hold in your life and you confess faith in Christ and believe in the resurrected Lord, you're saved, Christ is right there saying, okay, here's how we do this thing. That's what Paul is saying to them now. He's not saying, okay, so do better, try harder. He's saying, look at the gospel. Focus on what God has done for you, and in that you will be empowered to be more like Christ. Union with Christ leads us to imitation of Christ. Boys and girls, I want you to look with me at your verse 5. This is so important that you get this, boys and girls. Look with me here. It says this. 
y'all can have the humility from verses 1 through 4 in yourselves because of who you are in Christ. He gives us the strength to be humble like he was. Isn't that so encouraging, boys and girls? It's not try harder. It's look to Christ and say, oh, if I believe he did it, he helps me to do it. So if that's the case, for all of us, we should probably make sure we understand what did Christ do, and we'll wrap up with this. Christ laid aside his rights. Christ covered his glory. He selflessly served out of love for others. And if you are a Christian, you are called and empowered to do that too. Lay aside your rights. Lay aside your privileges. Don't assume your needs are important and you serve the body of Christ because you're serving Christ himself out of love, out of humility. That's when church unity happens. I mean, after all this glorious work Christ has done for us, how can we not love him and love those whom he loves? Is what Paul's asking us. If he was willing to be so humble for the benefit of his people, how can we too not be humble for the benefit of his people of whom we're a part? Oh, dear flock, we must examine our hearts. We must go back to God's grace seeking power to be humble like Christ. This is not natural to any of us. And if you're simply waiting for it to come natural, it's never going to happen. You must go back and look at Christ on the cross and his humility and say, make me like that. And then we will have the unity that shows the gospel is true. So that's about us inside the church. But you know what? Christ's transforming grace also empowers us to loving humility to those outside of the church as well. Let me give you an example. I received a text this week uh, from someone in the church, which I think many of you will resonate with, which, by the way, one of the reasons that my cell phone number is listed, if you want to text me with a more technical kind of question, I love that. It gives me time to think about it, and and I do respond to those. Anyway, this person asked me this. How do we live peacefully with all men when they seem so adamant to cram ungodliness down our throat. I think many of you in the room probably would resonate with that a little bit. It's a real-life question, isn't it? Well, the answer is, is twofold. One is to remember the decadence of the Roman Empire. We are a long way from experiencing what the first four generations of Christians experienced. The world has yet to see a more sex-saturated, pagan, idolatrous culture as was Rome. And if you think America is slipping that direction, you need to pick up some stuff about Rome and you will stop thinking that. We have a long way to go. And that's where the gospel exploded in that culture. Second, we have to show Christ's humility in the face of the evil of others. And that's the hard one, isn't it? See, Christ laid aside his rights. He laid aside his privileges for the good of others. We as Americans, we have lots of rights and we have a lot of privileges. Very few of which, by the way, the early Christians had. We need to be willing to give up rights and privileges for the sake of the gospel. Jesus gave up his rights to save his lost people. And united to him by faith, our testimony will be made real by our humility and giving up our rights 
and privileges too. Now, my answer may sound crazy to some of you. I know right now, but, but, but I would just like to remind you how many times Paul was imprisoned and he was a Roman citizen. And I would invite you to go back to the book of Acts and see how many times he told people about his Roman citizenship after his arrest, not before. You never find Paul saying, you can't arrest me for preaching Jesus. I'm a Roman citizen. He said, okay, arrest me. Take me. Are we there? Are we more interested in standing up for our rights than standing up for the privilege of being humble for the gospel? I would encourage you seriously to meditate on verses 6 and 7 as you look out at a changing culture and your response to that changing culture. And I would encourage you to ask not what would Jesus do, but ask what did Jesus do that we might be saved. He laid aside what he deserved. And he took up what he did not deserve, but we did. So others could live. Jesus was humbled for us so we could be humble in him. So I just want to ask you, do you want to be that kind of humble person? When you think about your ideal self, do you wish you were that kind of self-giving, humble person? Do you want to be part of a unified church whose love for each other, whose unity shouts out to the community around us, Jesus Christ was sent from God? If so, then don't try harder. Don't dig down and get more discipline to serve. No, instead, turn back in faith to the cross see the resurrected Lord having defeated that cross, having defeated death by his humble humility, having given you righteousness by his humble obedience, and tap into his resurrection power to be humble like he was. Turn in faith and cling to him. Ask him to make you more like himself in your humility, in your love, towards those in and outside the church, and then you better buckle up. He loves that prayer. In other words, at this point, as it is always at this point, if you wish to be this kind of humble, loving person, then repent and believe the gospel yet again. Not just as something that happened back then when you got saved, but as something that happens right now in your life to make you more like Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we confess part of our heart wants to be like Jesus so much. And another part of our heart is scared at the thought of asking for that kind of humility. Lord, we love our privileges. We love our rights. And when you get right down to it, we just don't know if you and your gospel are worth giving them up for. Would you help us? Father, those of us who know you, would you please make us more like Christ by the power of your spirit? And Lord, I pray for those who are here today who don't know you. I pray, Lord, that they will have heard clearly no one telling them to act more like Jesus. But instead, they will have heard that Jesus Christ died for their failures and sins, that they might have life. Lord, I pray that as Jesus Christ has been shown to be crucified and resurrected, that you would fulfill your promise of drawing all people to him. Now build your kingdom this day, Lord, in us and in our church. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you please stand? Let's respond to God's word together by singing, uh, May the mind of